Welcome to First Generation Burden, a podcast dedicated to immigrants in the creative community. My name is Rich Tu, and I'm your host. This is episode 68, season 8. Today we have record producer and digital artist Rio, who's crushing it in both worlds, which is a truly rare feat, actually. Uh, we get into how he started his creative career, uh, which led to music collaborations with the likes of Beyonce, and also how a medical scare changed his life. And we touched on a very recent project that he worked on with Kanye on one of his recent Donda listening events. Uh, It's really fascinating. Also, for you NFT and crypto enthusiasts, we talk about how NFTs and digital art can change the world. Spoiler alert, I'm a believer in it. So, uh, yeah, love where this conversation went. Um, And also, this is our final collaboration episode with the OG Magazine. A written version of this interview will be in the magazine, which is their issue for link in the description so without further ado here you go our conversation with rio on first gen burden rio thank you so much for joining us today for the special first gen burden the og magazine collaboration you are a digital artist music producer and also self-described future so i want to talk about all that stuff and also just want to talk a little bit about how your work sits at the convergence point of art and technology, all these things that I'm very, very much interested in. Um, and also your work in NFTs too, which is also a space that I dabble in. Uh, but first questions first, uh, just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Yeah, man. Thanks uh, for having me on here. You know, I'm a big fan of your work as well. And, um, you know, just a little bit about me. I'm, I'm a music producer, visual artist, um, kind of grew up drawing a lot and dancing. Um, so music was a huge part of, um, you know, my influences and stuff. I moved around a lot. My mom was in the military, so I was born in Colorado, spent some time in Cali, um, moved to South Carolina for high school and middle school, and then to Florida for college, then spent some time in Atlanta and LA doing music, um, and then moved to New York, and then just recently moved out to Denver uh, during the pandemic to Lalo. Oh, you're in Colorado? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, the um, height differential out there. Yeah, it'll get you. <laughs> yeah, so I heard. So I want to talk a little bit about your heritage, too. You're described yourself as an African-Mexican Native American. There's a lot of great cultural uh, convergence happening with you. Just want to hear how that might have influenced your creative journey and also what it was like growing up in a multicultural household. Yeah, man. So um, my story is a little interesting because my mother is Mexican and Native American and um, my father was black, but I wasn't raised with my father in my life. So I kind of always heard, you know, that he was black, but um you know, in all my, all the households that I've been in, I've always been the darkest. So in hanging out with all my Mexican family, I was just the, you know, the kid who tanned really, really well. And, um, and then, you know, my mom married, um, like a blonde haired, blue eyed white guy. And so on his side of the family, I was the darkest too. So I kind of grew up in this really interesting spot and didn't know, um, any of the African side of my family until um, I met my dad about 10 years ago for the first time. We had like a, like we spent like a couple hours together and then um, we lost touch again. Um, And then just recently in the last two years, uh, we've reconnected. But in that time I, I did my ancestry and I was able to find out way more about my hair. Like a 23andMe? Yeah, it was at ancestry.com, but 
same, same difference. Um, but I found out, you know, I've got the majority of my blood is from Nigeria. Um, and then Cameroon and Congo. And then like, you know, in those ancestry things, there's no such thing as Mexican because Mexican is just native, you know? And so it was very interesting to learn that. And then I made my dad take one as well. So that was really interesting for him because I asked, I asked his mom before she died, I was like, Hey, you know, what are we? And she's like, we're black. And I'm like, grandma, that's, that's a color. That's not, you know what I mean? That's, we're not, that's not from anywhere. Like, where are we from? You know? And she really couldn't answer that. She was strict Jehovah's witness. So I think part of her didn't even consider asking, you know? Um, so it's, it's been an interesting thing for me to, cause, um, I didn't fit in in anywhere. Um, you know, I just kind of had to make my own lane as, and, and even growing up in South Carolina, you know, I, I didn't look like a lot of the kids that I was around. And so there was just a lot of um, identity for me um, that I put into just calling myself an artist, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like more than I think being black or being Mexican, I was like, I'm an artist, you know, I'm, I'm a combination of things. I make music, I make, you know, I dance, I do this, I do that. So yeah, I'm just a mixture of all of it. Well, you know, that's so many parallels I hear in your journey. For me, I'd never really associated with being like an Asian artist or a Filipino artist for a yeah. while. And I, I really just wanted to, you know, like you're saying, um, just be an, an artist. This was what I found is like the, the purest form of my personal identification. But then when I started leaning a bit more into my culture and also finding like the beauty and the nuance there, did it, I my identity has somewhat shifted closer to, you know, you know, that cultural heritage. But for you, has have you connected deeper into your into your West African bloodline? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think uh, what's interesting is growing up, the things that I used to dance to or be drawn to was a lot of like Timbaland beats where he would use like a lot of percussion and a lot of like really kind of tribal sounds. And I don't know what that was, but it resonated with me. And the older I got, I started getting into, you know, Afrobeat music and like music from Africa. And I would sample records. Like, you know, I would always constantly be looking for records that had like African drums and things and in no real idea why. And it wasn't until I did my ancestry that I was like, wow, like this makes so much sense. You know, why I've been, I've loved this music, you know? I literally just had a conversation with Walshie Fire too. Do you know Walshie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I see. I've seen him out in um, Trinidad. I spent a lot of time in Trinidad, the Carnival, and he and he goes out there. I'd love to hear about how you embarked on your formal creative journey because it's such a unique uh, way to live one's life, and your work is fucking killer. I gotta say, which involves like so much technical skill. I can really see like the love, appreciation, craft top line headspace is going on. So when did you really start taking yourself seriously? So I, the earliest memory I had that, that something was different about me was um, in preschool, there was a coloring contest. And, you know, without any like experience or anything like that, I just remember coloring this thing, like how I think it should be. And I won first place. I had like my picture in the little newspaper and, um, and then I remember I came home and, and there was prizes that came with this. And as, as soon as I opened the door, like on my couch, there was like a mound. It looked like two miles high. 
you know, of like color pencils and markers and like just everything to create with. And to me, it was like the most beautiful thing ever. Like I want to do this because when I see those, I see potential, you know, um, maybe some of the kid would have seen an action figure or, you know what I mean? Some other kind of toy, like, Oh, I'm going to play with that. But for me, playing meant creating. And, um, and that was just so just from that moment from on, I just always was drawing and, and, and creative. And I remember I had this little blue light in my room that I, um, my grandpa had made and I, and I had it like the whole room blue, like it was an installation and, you know, I would just be in there playing my music and drawing. And I was always creating these like kind of like mini incubators for myself. Um, even when it came to dancing or whatever, but I, and then growing up, I, I had a little job at Burger King or I worked at like a Publix and, and my second job ever was drawing the signs at Publix. Like I, they had an opening to like, to someone would draw all the artwork for, for the displays and stuff. And for me, I was like, yeah, like this is, I'm going to get paid to draw. Like, you know, and I would be up in the break room where other people would get off and hang out and I would be up there just drawing all day. And I, I knew from that moment that this is, I didn't want to have a boss in that way. I wanted to be able to just be creative and make my own schedule. And, um, and then I went to art school and, when I was in art school, I was I was going to like the little job board and they would have like postings, people wanting, hey, we need face painting. We need a chill. I had I, I found this guy who um, his name is Joe Sear. Shout out to Joe. But way back when I was in college and I was a starving artist, like, you know, he would pay me to uh, design his children's books. He, he had a stroke. And um, when he came out of the stroke, he all of a sudden had this talent for writing poetry. Like it just like a, a switch flipped. And, um, and so he had these, these, all this writing and he wanted it to be illustrated. And so um, him and his wife used to take me out to, to breakfast and then give me a, a nice check to just illustrate his little ideas. And, you know, that was one of those things that I was like, I know I, I this is going to be my job. You know, I just have to figure out how to get there. Where'd you go to college? I went to Ringling School of Art and Design in uh, Sarasota, Florida. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, so much talent comes out of Ringling. Yeah. The reason I'm asking is because so much of your work, I, I see like the, the cinema, I see the illustrative skill, I see like the drawing capabilities. Um, what, what was Ringling really training you for? A lot of the listeners for this uh, program are specifically students within the creative community, so I'm curious. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to... Yeah, like I went to school for one year at Ringling. Um, it just, school was an interesting thing for me because I realized that um, while I was doing it, art school is, is different. Regular school is like two plus two is four. You know, you go for math, you go for law, you go for whatever. There's a definite answer to your question. But with art school, it's like I draw this and the teacher's like, do I like it or not? You know, it's, it's very subjective, you know, in nature. So I, I just was kind of butting heads with certain teachers and like certain ways that I wanted to go. And I knew that, um, that all the work that I was doing on the side, like I said, all the freelance stuff I was doing, like on the weekend, I'd be painting faces. I would be doing caricatures. I would, I was already working as an artist, you know? Um, and so one other extra funny thing that happened is, um, I realized that Ringling was such a small school and the teachers um, 
their their schedule was like not filled up. So in the meantime, they would go to the community college like 20 minutes away and teach classes. And my mom didn't have a whole lot of money for me for the loans and stuff like that. Oh, wow. What a good hack. What a great hack. So I went to the community college and I signed up without trying to get a degree. I just, some of these teachers I really loved, I just took the class over and over again just to build with them and and really learn from them. And so I kind of hacked school in a different way. And um, and I, I mean, I, I just really proud of how that came out because I learned so much stuff without having to get the degree, but I knew that, um, I was going to take it into the real world, you know, for sure. What were those first early projects that you were, that you were working on? And like, how, what was your, what was your breakthrough point? Well, to be honest, um, this is kind of like where the road split for me because I was doing a bunch of design, um, projects on the side, but I still had to work a regular job. It wasn't enough to fully just have me sustaining. But um, right when I kind of like stopped going to uh, Ringling, I started to make beats. And I had a friend who was a rapper and he also went to Ringling. And so, um, I don't know, like, again, I was a dancer. I was always dancing, always listening to music. And so I think part of me was like, I think I can do this, you know? And I'd always heard that my father was a musician he was a singer he played um, drums and percussion. And so something inside of me, whatever that voice is, that's like, you know, you should try this. I think, you know, something might come from this. Um, that started to take over more of my time than the art. Like I was still doing it, but the music, I was like infatuated with it. And, um, and then um, over the years, like I started getting better, started getting better. I started selling a couple beats and I was making more money selling beats than I was doing the art. And selling beats is interesting because, you know, you create like a vault of stuff. And then if someone hears it, they buy that. So they can buy something I made two years ago. But with art, it was like I had to go do that thing specifically for that person and then get paid. So I think in my mind, my business mind was like, wait a minute, this this kind of is more lucrative. But then I got the news that um, I was diagnosed with cancer. I had like a, a tumor in my neck uh, that was about the size of a golf ball. And it, I didn't know it was a tumor. Um, it took three months for us to do like various biopsies. Um, I had a bone marrow biopsy, which is the second most painful thing, medical procedure apparently, um, bes- uh, besides a spinal tap. Um, and then we finally figured out what it was. And then here I was with this information that now maybe my dreams aren't going to come true. You know, maybe I have to fight this thing now. And, um, and it was like a nine month, you know, kind of process of doing chemotherapy and radiation. But I will say, man, like the first day I got the news, I came home and, um, I had like a list of people to call, you know, my mom, my girlfriend, like all these people. And the only thing that I felt that I could do at the moment was make music because that's how I could communicate what I was feeling you know, more than words. And that's when I really knew that music was, um, was super powerful and important for me. And even during the process, you know, I was a huge Pharrell fan at the time. And like, I was trying, you know, trying to make beats so I could wear a chain and like, you know, but now it's like music had this deeper meaning. Um, so during the process, I really used music as a, a way to vent my frustrations to like, 
give myself a reason to kind of wake up and keep fighting. And then, um, you know, I was blessed that as soon as I finished my, my last radiation treatment, um, I got the call that one of the tracks that I made during that time, uh, Beyonce wanted it. And it was my first official placement um, as a music producer, like right out of, you know, finishing beating cancer. So um, it was definitely confirmation that, you know, I was necessary here and that, you know, um, that that fight was worth it and that all the things that I thought about being a creative and and making money from it were, were here, you know, so... No, for sure. You know, I, I think that going back to what you said about what's lucrative versus not lucrative and also the way that we make our money. Sometimes I think about, you know, this industry that we're in also like when you do one offs or like pure commissions or like, you know, when you work on um, these uh, smaller projects, it's like uh, you are a baker. It's like you're baking bread. If someone wants to taste the bread that you make, you have to bake them a new loaf every single time versus being able to do it in quantity or according to scale also probably healthier for your your work-life balance too and not just to mention like the the upside of it but i just want to go back to um to collaborating with beyonce so you're coming out of uh this this incredible cancer scare yeah yeah and also you you may not feel at the time but you're on that upswing professionally and also physically too yeah what's the where do you feel your artistry is and what's that beyonce feedback like or was it simply just a, a purchase of the catalog um so at this point it was just um a track that i produced a friend of mine was the writer they wrote the song and then submitted it to her so i didn't have um that much you know uh influence in in anything like you know the track or how it ended up um and to be honest like i was kind of you know, we were left in the dark. We didn't know if it was going to make it on the album or not. And it was like a year long of kind of waiting to see. And then I had to go to the store and like open the CD and see my name to like really believe it. Um, but I did go to the concert out in LA when she did the tour. And that was Sasha Fierce, right? Yeah, Sasha Fierce. So I, I looked around at all the people singing, you know, the song and just that moment of like manifesting you know and then like here you are like visualizing something that you dreamed of and something in me was just like you know this isn't over you know with her and then fast forward to about three four years ago um i got a call to go work um up at parkwood on some things which is her company and then i got to um just through that whole process work on you know, Jay-Z's 444 tour. I worked on um, her Coachella performance and I worked on um, the On The Run tour with her and Jay-Z. And there was like a really cool moment where I got to speak with her about producing that song and just like how here I am now, you know, 10 plus years later doing visuals for her tour, you know? And I just remember that moment of being in the audience and seeing her perform and being like, you know, there's, there's, this is going to be someone that I, I work with a few times in my life. So yeah, it was, it was just a beautiful full circle moment for me, you know? Are there any sort of um, gems that you can drop in terms of, you know, what, what, what could she say and what could she contribute? Yeah. Uh, the thing that I, that I respect about her the most is that she's got the most 
pressure on her because she has to sing perfectly. She's got to dance perfectly. She's got to look beautiful and, you know, and, and be the star. And in that process, you would think that because she has so much of that to memorize and remember when she's leading and she's directing the show and she's, you know, reviewing it and seeing, she knows everybody's parts. She knows where everyone should be. She knows what color light that's supposed to be. Like she's on it in a way that I think most people would be like, you know what? I have so much to do. You know what I mean? I'm going to go back here and practice singing or practice this or practice that. It's like, she's so fully involved in her and everything. Um, and I've heard so many stories about Michael Jackson being the same way. Oh, wow. And you know, they're both Virgos <laughs> and, and that attention to detail you know, is so it's such a huge characteristic of, of that sign. So um, I've just seen it in real life and, and I've never seen her like yell at anybody or talk down to anybody. She's always very like gracious and, and you want to do your best work working for her. I've had some horror stories of other creatives that, you know, feel like they have to assert their dominance and like, you know, be the boss on set. She's not like that. And, and that's to me, that's learning from someone how to lead is such an important, you know, tool. Do you know Kelly Shammy from Parkwood? I do. Oh yeah. No, Kelly's my homegirl. Actually, she's been on this podcast too. So. Okay. That's what's up. Yeah. Shout out Kelly. She's super talented. She's yeah. great. Love Kelly. Their jewelry hustle. Wild. Yeah. But speaking of hustle and also want to move into NFTs, specifically everything about, you know, futurism, technology. When did you start digging into that space? I mean, it's emerging space. There's a ton of people flooding it right now, but it feels like you've always been future driven and also forward thinking. Uh, what was your first couple of steps into crypto NFTs and that community? Yeah, man. So it's been about a year, actually. Um, and last year, this time, you know, during the pandemic, Clubhouse was a thing that just started. A friend of oh, a yep. friend of mine got me in there early, early, and so I was in these rooms that you know were like really small rooms talking about this thing, and I and I saw some of the people that I look up to as designers, like you know, starting to sell these things. Now, four years ago, I had an art show, and it was all digital, and I sold nothing. You know, there was nothing to buy. It was more of like a showcase, but I knew that, you know, somehow as, as a digital artist, I had to be able to sell my work besides getting hired by brands to create content, you know, like we're artists, like we can make content, you know, but the things that I make on my own time, like how can I sell them? And, you know, I had other friends that were making prints and stuff like that, but I was really stubborn in the idea that my work is digital, but I don't think that should be something that stops me from being able to be in a museum or to be able to have an art show and sell art. And so these conversations in Clubhouse really kind of like intrigued me because, you know, a lot of these people that I, that I know in the space are, they were at the height of their game. They're working for, you know, the Nikes, the Super Bowl, the whatever, and, you know, getting paid really well, like myself doing you know, campaigns and things, Beyonce, this and that. And it's like, we're making this amount of money. And the other step is to be like a creative director at a company or something like that. But there wasn't really a lane of, I'm just a digital artist. I sell my work and this is it. And there was a very few of them. Right. So I think that, that to me, that was like, this is the answer for what I've been trying to do. And, um, and we just, 
it was like a really dope community building under under the um kind of surface and then i just had to wrap my head around it there's a lot of different things you know learning curve getting a metamask you know buying eth like there's there's all these things but it wasn't until like around january that i started to i think i posted my first um my first pieces wow january of 2021 not a lot of people were even in it at that time. Yeah, yeah, beginning of this year. In, in the crypto space, it's like a week is like three months. Like things move so fast that it feels like way longer than that, but. I uh, I minted my first NFT, my first personal piece NFT back in February. Oh, wow. And then the person who told me, yeah, he had only been in it for a week. Yeah. But it felt like he'd known so much. And it felt like just like what you're saying, Rio, where like, it's like dog years, yeah. like a week is like a month and a month is like a year yeah. almost. And I feel like it's a philosophical difference. I was just on some email exchanges the other day about, so I saw a meme about like someone described an NFT, like, yeah, imagine if you could own a Mona Lisa, but then you couldn't like physically own it and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, my retort to that was like, if you were to look at the Mona Lisa, all the, it's just oil and canvas and wood that makes up a frame and on a cosmic level, on an atomic level, that's no different from the zeros and ones that make up a digital native piece of art. So before there was no respect on what a digital artist was yeah. because you couldn't, if the, the space that it would be displayed at was to me as a digital artist also, that's almost a lesser than iteration of what the of what the actual expression is, you know, because before you paint in, um, you know, uh, brushes, paint, pens, pencils, whatever on physical materials. Uh, but now, you know, we run things through our computers into the zeros and ones, which is the native. But now we've actually given value to the native digital asset. It's like such a philosophical change in terms of what's happened. No, true. And I think that this is a, a big conversation about scarcity too, right? Does just scarcity the only determining factor of value because you know music we can all listen to the new kanye album does that make it any less special or any less valuable no but i see you're a big sneakerhead like myself and you know we understand that those shoes that you want those jordans that you want you know there's only this many pairs and then somebody bought them with a bot and then next you know you're paying three times over retail for something because you understand the scarcity but that shoe is still made with the same $15 of leather. You know, it does, it's, it's, we all understand that, but culture brings the value. And I think there's this big argument about NFTs, like, oh, I could just right click and save it. But I could also walk into a random neighborhood and point at a house and say, I, I want that house. But whose right. name is on the deed? Like who owns it? You know what I mean? You can, you can right. take a picture of the Mona Lisa, like you said, but do you own it? No, we all know you don't own it. So I think as we move into this digital world where augmented reality, you know, the three biggest companies in the world, Google, Apple, and Facebook are all working and putting more millions of dollars into AR technology than anything else they've ever done. We, they understand yep. that that's going to be just normal life very soon. And so the things that you own in the digital world will be displayed on your walls. They will be, you know, like verified. And I think younger kids, too, yeah. that play Fortnite, they, they understand the value of buying something with money and not having it tangible. But they know when they go in that game, all those skins and emotes and things that they have, they, they're in their account. 
You know what I mean? So no, for sure. Yeah, this is such a great conversation. And what we're talking about here, we're like you know, these metaversal principles. Essentially, I think that there are two POVs of what the metaverse could be. It's like stepping into it where a true immersion within the Fortnites and the Robloxes and the Minecrafts of the world, where you are, you know, that interoperability of these digital assets that can just travel amongst all these different platforms. Then also there's the metaversal layer that sits on top of our reality. So it's essentially coming to us where, you know, through an AR lens or you know, there's no reason why. Um, let's say Marshmallow uh, doing a concert in Fortnite couldn't also be simulcast or do some sort of massive takeover in Times Square where we're all watching the same thing mm -hmm. physically. But like, you know, I don't, there's a less of a technological barrier. So I don't need, you know, a high powered gaming PC to witness this one thing. Yeah. You know, like we're seeing all these layers. Like we used to talk about, we as a society, remember we used to talk about the singularity a lot. Yeah. The singularity would be the convergence point of where, where technology and AI would just be out of control. All of a sudden it'd be fucking like, you know, Terminator rising machines <laughs> yeah. and we'd all be like Skynet everywhere. But now we're talking about the metaverse as this space where we can all just like live. Mm -hmm. Where are you at in terms of exploring in that space beyond NFTs? Like in the metaverse, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been working with some, uh, some people, you know, about avatars and just the idea of avatars. I just did, um, with uh, Crypto Fashion Week, I did a, a fashion show um, with taking my ugly character. And, you know, it's interesting because if you take like the Memoji on our iPhone where we can kind of, you know, create this character that looks like us or not like us and, you know, use it as a mask. I think that, you know, we will create one of those and then you can take it into every game or every setting that you're in and it will follow you. And so I, I do think that even, you know, being big into fashion myself, the idea of sustainability with clothing or, you know, this scarcity thing where not everybody can get something, even when it comes to gender and identity, like I'm really fascinated with um, someone not feeling like comfortable in their own skin and in this reality, but creating that in the metaverse and being able to, you know, move around and be that way. I think that, um, you know, the series that I'm doing, the ugly series has a lot to do with um, even body dysmorphia and like this idea of like, when you look into the mirror, you don't, um, you don't recognize yourself or what is ugly, what is beautiful, like kind of like those kind of conversations, especially when we talk about, you know, filters and stuff and like, you know, Instagram, you know, appearances. And I, I think that the metaverse is really going to be an amazing place to, um, to kind of explore those things and sort of um, be who you really feel like you are inside. Um, I do think that of course, you know, that power in the wrong hands could, could go the other way too, um, where people don't recognize themselves at all and they kind of forget, you know, who they are. So I, th I think in the next few years, we're going to have to really kind of hold strong on some of the, the standards and the rules you know, for practice going forward. Yeah, for sure. For your ugly NFT collection, like how long have you been doing that? And also what was the genesis of that first character? Yeah, so in January, um, I started an everyday uh, series where I worked on something every single day. Um, January, as you know, is, is a pretty slow month, December and January for like creative work and stuff. So I had a lot of time on my hands. 
And so I noticed that, you know, my every days were going like five hours long. I was working on something and, you know, as the work started to come in, I, I had less and less time, but I noticed that there's this pressure that us as creatives, we put on ourselves to make something beautiful, right? It's like you sit down with a blank canvas, even as a musician, it's like, okay, I got to make the best thing I've ever made here. You know, and especially if you've got a little bit of a resume, you know, you've worked with these certain people or brands or whatever, um, that that feeling in your head of sitting in front of a blank canvas gets more and more daunting, at least for me, I'm speaking for myself. But um, <clears throat> so one day I realized that I was stressed out and that I needed to change my mindset for a second to get into a mode of being like, how can I sit down and work for like an hour, make something and put it out? Just get over my release anxiety because I noticed that I was starting to like right. not post for two weeks and then, you know, post something and then not post for two weeks. And every time I was so caught up on the likes of the numbers that it was stopping me from from posting. So that's why I started the everyday practice. But this time I was like, what if I said what if I started out saying I want to make something ugly on purpose? And so. That was the genesis of it. That's when I started. I, the first thing I posted, um, I posted a little thing about it on Instagram and everyone was like, yo, this is so ugly. This is, you know, and that wasn't, that was a compliment. You know, that wasn't something that, you know, I, I was afraid of anymore. And so then I was like, cause that's what you set out to do. Yeah. And um, so, and then I like to share some of these things too, because a lot of my work is about me exploring um, things questions I have or things that I'm dealing with internally, you know, and so sharing that bit of it, um, I think connected to a lot of people. So they were kind of championing me. And so I did it the next day and then they loved that one. And then I did it again. And then they loved that one. I was like, okay, I got something. And then I fixed the camera. So it's like, when I sit down, I've got, I know the face, the camera's in the right position and I just got to change the materials and the mask. So I'm putting like, you know, myself in a box, to where I have to be creative in this space. And I think sometimes that problem we have when we have a blank canvas is like, if I can do anything, what do I do? Right. So being able to give myself some limits and then have a theme. Um, and I just ran with it, man. And, and it's actually been something that's been really incredible for me because people recognize me for that style. And, you know, I've been able to make some pretty good money off NFTs doing it. And, you know, it was the, it was, where do you sell? Do you sell on OpenSea? So I'm on a few, uh, I've been selling on, I've sold on Rarible, sold on OpenSea, sold on Known Origin, um, Maker's Place. Um, I'm about to do some stuff with Super Rare coming up. Um, but yeah, I, I tried to test them all out because they all have their pros and cons. You know, Zora is another really great one. I really, really like Zora. Um, they take zero commission on on you know their stuff and other sites are like 15 10 percent also it's cool that you're a collector too and notice your your cool cats avatar yes, sir yeah you're not just one to to constantly sell you also you also collect yourself so definitely you know validity and you know part of the community that's what's up and that's like the best feeling too honestly like when you get a bunch of ETH from making a sale like like one of the things i love is is like that feeling of um when someone collects your work, it, it, they understand you, you know, and they, they get it and they see it. And, um, you know, usually you talk with them in the DMS and they'll tell you how the piece made them feel or whatever. Um, and then, you know, 
being able to give that to somebody else has been amazing. I've got some incredible DMs from people like, you know, my grandma's in the hospital and you're helping me pay for her medication and doing this and doing that. And, you know, like, or I didn't believe in myself and, you know, this has helped me to be able to like stop working this job that I didn't, that I hated. Or, you know, I've heard people were in abusive homes and they got to pay, you know, to, to move out. And I mean, it's just incredible. Like, and one last thing too, is like coming from the music business, you know, when I put a song out, I got to get a million people to listen to it in order to make $4,000 on Spotify. That's, that's how much you make for a million streams. But one person can buy a piece for $4,000. You know, I don't have to get the world. Yeah, I don't have to get the world to understand it. I just have to find one person in my tribe that thinks like me, that sees, you know, the world, you know, as I do. And so I think that for other artists, um, you know, in small towns or in areas where, you know, there's not a lot of community for art or digital art through through this, through the NFTs, they're able to make a living or at least make some extra money so that they don't have to stress out. And to me, that's one of the best parts of this whole thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel like there's so much, so much of a community driven upside that a lot of people right now are just finding that opportunity. And it's a really great time um, to see, to see all that energy happening. You recently worked with Kanye West, uh, one of the, and a couple of the Donda uh, listening uh, events. I would love to hear a little bit about how that relationship um, came to be and also what that, um, what that process was like. Yeah. So um, I was brought in by good co is a, like a production um, team that, um, we worked on a few things together, like some uh, Travis Scott stuff and the Jay-Z 444 stuff in the past. 444, sorry. Um, and so, yeah, they, they work on a bunch of different shows and, and they were like, hey, we're going to be working on this. And my boy Maxime um, was creative directing it and brought me in. And so it was just a crew of us that were working on the visuals for the second um, Atlanta listening. And they have in the Mercedes Stadium, they have a huge... A circle screen, circular screen. And so we were working on all the content for that. But um, I've been a huge Kanye West fan, you know, um, since the very beginning. I've been to every single one of his concerts. Like I'm a huge fan of, of how he's, um, how he interprets the music visually. And I think that's kind of why for me doing tour visuals and stuff was so um, right in my lane because of the music and the visual aspect of it. Like it's literally about combining them both. But being around him and like seeing, seeing he's such an amazing curator of talent. He picks the best of the best, like the best, you know, when it comes to the production side, when it comes to the artistic side, the music side, like the artist that he puts on the tracks, like he's just an amazing um, just curator and, that, and director of talent, you know? And just to be a part of the team that was, you know, working on some of that stuff was, was just incredible. Um, and, and hearing the music evolve as well was really interesting because we would be sent some of the music, you know, and then it, the next day we'd get another version of it. And the next day we'd get another version. And you just, you know, as a producer, I'm like, oh, wow. So they took that out. They put that in. Do you think that for a person who operates on his scale, uh, does does he need just to have that level of pressure in order to produce, you know, or is that like, what is that his level of pressure testing? 
what's the what's the source of you know like th- that level of spectacle to the lead up of a release? Yeah, unprecedented. Yeah, it is. I- I, I will say, like, working with Beyonce gave me a totally different perspective because working with her and her team, everything is calculated. Everything is, like, measured in ex- its exact place and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed until it's perfect. Kanye is very much the opposite. Everything is, like, emotional and for a reason. And, and something changed, like, huge things changed, like, 20 minutes before the show started, you know, like sweeping changes where it's just like, now I want this. Now I hate this color. Now, I, you know, and, and I understand that too, because he's going with his gut. And um, that is what, that is what has gotten him this far is his gut. And so he, he really, really leans on that. Um, and I think that that's, again, like you, you make, you're paying a million dollars a day to rent out that stadium. That pressure, you know, is on you to finish the album, to make it amazing, to present it in the way that you, you know, you envision. So, um, yeah, it's just two different ways of approaching it, but being able to see, I I will say it's, it's way more chaotic around. Yay. You know, it's like just a lot of high energy, you know, that's an amazing insight into that world for sure. So, uh, last question: um, What do you feel gives you more life right now? Is it living in within audio creative space or visual creative space? Man, I I really have tried my hardest to merge them both. I I really really have because I I think when I've seen people like Kanye or Donald Glover, you know, people that operate in different mediums, it's just like whatever they touch is their art, you know. Donald Glover can make a TV show, he can act, he can sing, he can rap, he can, you know, but whatever he touches is the art. And I, I really stopped, you know, trying to put myself in a certain category at a certain time. My girlfriend makes fun of me because sometimes I'll be literally making a beat and it's on loop and I'm just like listening to it and then I'm in Cinema 4D making changes. And then like, when I'm kind of stuck on that, and I need to look at that for a minute. I go back to fixing things in the beat because then I'm like, all right, I know I've been listening to this long enough. I know what to change and what to not. And there's a lot of times where I have one hand on the trackpad and one hand on the mouse over here. And I'm like yep. PC and Mac, you know, one in each hand. And I just think that that's who I am. And I'm, I'm done kind of like trying to choose. I think that now my, my art moving forward is all going to have music tied to it. And I'm about to release an album, um, an EP in the next few weeks. And to me, it's one of the most visual things that I've ever done, even though it's audio. So, yeah, man, I, I really like to think that I'm both. Rio, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, I could talk to you for hours <laughs> upon hours. Uh, I'm going to come to Colorado and we're going to get elevated. Let's do it, man. Yeah, Let's do for it. sure. Love that. Um, so thank you for joining us. And also, uh, where can our listeners uh, find you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram and Twitter at ThisRio, T-H-I-S-R-E-O. I got links in both bios that have like, <clears throat> there's a link to my, like a playlist on Spotify with all the songs that I've been producing, um, links to prints, my NFTs and all of that. But thank you so much, Rich. Shout out to Che for, for making this happen. And uh, yeah, man. Shout out, Che. Thank you, brother. All right, bro. Later. Thanks for listening, everyone. Shout out to Rio. That was a great conversation. Also, check out his work. Check out his NFTs. He's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And also, I'm a huge fan. 
Um, so thanks for listening. You can find the First Generation Burden podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. It helps spread the good word. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden, and you can find me, your host, at rich underscore tu. Check out the OG magazine. There's a final collaboration episode, but the magazine has really great content. Link in the description. Shout out to Che. Shout out to Sarah. Shout out to the whole team. Um, and check out Mini Cooper. Link also in the description. A portion of the proceeds from any of the card top purchases go to the American Immigration Council. Thanks to the Desgen team for their support. Thanks to you, the listener. Be safe, everyone. Bye. <laughs>